All right, welcome to a new health care option for small employers. Yes, your church with Shelby Pratt serving as your presenter today. We are in room 109 of Upper Arlington High School. My name is Shelby Pratt, and I'll be serving as this session's host as well. You can reach me at 614-396-0700, extension 146, or my email address is just shelby at ohioministry.net. 614-396-0700, extension 146, or shelby at ohioministry.net. At any time, please, throughout this session, feel free to raise your hand. Let me know if you have a question. We'll do our very best to answer them all. I'll be writing them down as we go. If I can't get to them during the session, maybe we can squeeze them in after the fact. Also, um... For those that may not be aware, if you have either accessed your SCED Synergy schedule on your phone or device or on your computer, I do have this presentation both as a PowerPoint, so you can actually see my notes, as well as uh, a PDF of the slides are online, and you can download them directly from the app. Uh, When you go into the session, uh, you'll see the, the attachments there. If you are interested, I do also have for the frequently asked questions session that I did before and will do after lunch. Um, in both of those, I couldn't put all of them on one uh, because it limited me. There are about 12 to 14, I can't remember the exact number, of different documents, articles, uh, samples of spreadsheets that I use um, that you are free to access and download from those the church frequently asked questions Uh, sessions as well. First, let me give you a bit of history in regards to um, what was previously in place for employer reimbursement of health care expenses. So before the Affordable Care Act, and this this is thinking outside the realm of a group health plan that was sponsored by an employer. So this is just employer and one or two employees, and not a group per se. Before that, there was a way that employers could pay or reimburse the out-of-pocket medical expenses for an employee. It was just called a standalone health reimbursement. Um, And it was considered a non-taxable fringe benefit, and it was confirmed by the IRS Revenue Ruling 6146. Uh, so the paying of the cost by um, an employer, that could be directly paying the health insurance provider or reimbursing the employee for a substantiated expense. The amounts were, were non-taxable. Any, just, oh, I just put this in there just to kind of quiz you guys. Anyone have a guess as to when revenue ruling 61-146 took place? 1961. If you ever see any literature about a revenue ruling or anything, the first two digits signify the year in which it took place. Uh, so, so that took place in 1961, and, and I'm assuming, this I do not know, but I'm assuming that the 146 means it was the 146th revenue ruling of 1961. Beginning in January of 2014, however, the Affordable Care Act 
uh, imposed a penalty of $100 per day per employee for which an employer paid or reimbursed out-of-pocket expenses. Now, there, technically, the, the penalties were imposed by the uh, IRS. It wasn't really ACA, but it was the IRS interpretation of the ACA. Um, and it, that, could be, that could be up to $36,500 per year in penalty. Um, if if an employer did that, uh, there was an exception. There was an exception, and we'll come to that in just a little. Well, it's actually right here. That would be for employers who only had one employee. Technically, the language of the Affordable Care Act said one participant. So theoretically, if you had two employees but only one for which the employer was reimbursing, you were still technically legal. But most experts translated that to be one employee. So if you read anything from Richard Hammer or if you read anything from, um, oh, I'm forgetting, the, there's a Texas accounting firm that's Summerhill. Uh, they would say one employee. Um, so that bottom provision actually did help a number of our churches. So it, would ha- it, it did keep where a lot of our scenarios where you had one full-time pastor and maybe you had a part-time secretary who, or an assistant that wouldn't have qualified for coverage anyway because of their part-time status, that church could still kind of legally, they could legally still provide that kind of health reimbursement arrangement for their pastor. Today, we have something new, and it is called a Qualified Small Employer Health Reimbursement Arrangement. So we have something new, and it is technically technically the same thing that was in place before as far as what it allowed, and what what I referred to as that standalone health reimbursement arrangement, but now they have simply formalized it into a new provision, a new uh, law. It was part of what, is, what was called the 21st Century Cures Act. Predominantly, this piece of legislation, which was signed by President Obama on December 13th of last year, um, it, oddly enough, again, it was, just, it was signed into law on December 13th for employers that would want to create a plan as early as January 1st of 2017. I didn't know about this until January of 2017. And so I'm sure that there were not many employers who were able to do so. But here's the interesting thing. If you want to do this, you can still do this this year. You have nine days in order to get it done because they, they extended the open enrollment period for what is now called a QSERA, and that's, you're going to hear me say QSERA, Qualified self, uh, Small Employer Health Reimbursement Arrangement. You do not want me to try to say that as many times as you will see the acronym up on the board. Um, and I don't want to try to say it that many times. So it's, um, if you want to en- enact a QSERA for your organization, you have until... March 13th to do one for this year. Again, no one really heard about it when it was done. Apparently, and I did some, I've done I've, what I'm presenting today, 
obviously none of this is original to me because I just, when I first learned about it, I started finding every resource I could about it. Uh, the advantage is no resource is more than about three months old. So it's really fresh. Uh, but there are some that were written like the day after it was signed into law, and there were some that were written, you know, like more recently. And, those, and so I tried to get both to see if there was much difference. Um, it was a massive piece of legislation that primarily dealt with FDA approval processes. It dealt with funding for, for research. And one article I read, and only one, said, literally used these words, that it was tacked on to the end of the bill. It was like the last piece, the last provision added to the 21st Century Cures Act was this thing called the Qualified Self... Small, see, I keep saying it wrong anyways. Qualified Small Employer Health Reimbursement Arrangement. So it was, it was kind of an afterthought, but it was done intentionally as a, as a counter to what happened with ACA in that it, was, it really was harmful to many employers that took advantage of that because there were, you know, small employers, there are, though, though they don't have to provide health care, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit, they don't have to provide health care, there are many, and churches are a very common one, that want to do so. They want to be able to provide something for their staff, even if they're not required to by law. But when they took away, and so what many of them did prior to 2014 was to just do a health reimbursement arrangement because it was allowed. But once this came about, I sent out, a, I, sent out a, I remember sending out the email that I sent out about it and all of the emails I got back about, what, I can't do this anymore? What are we going to do? Oh, it was, it was awful. And so, you know, in an effort to try to alleviate that burden and pressure for small employers, because they make up a lot of income tax dollars across our country, um, they figured out we need to do something else to remove this burden that, has, that the IRS has tried to put on them. So thus the Cusera was born or reborn, maybe. So it is an arrangement that is provided on the same terms to all employees of an eligible employer. And I'm, since we're in high school having these sessions, I figure what better place to put bold type, because if you think back to the days when you were in school, Julie tells the same thing to her students for this, that she teaches right now, study the bold print. You know, those are the definition words. They're going to be in the glossary in the back of the book. So we're going to come back to some definitions for those phrases that you see up there. So it is provided on the same terms to all eligible employees of an eligible employer. It must be funded solely by the employer. So it's only employee contributions. There, an employee may not contribute to the Cusera. It is, it is a, thus the name, when you think health reimbursement arrangement, reimbursement, an employee doesn't reimburse himself or herself. The employer reimburses them. So this is funded only by the employer. It is also an arrangement that provides for the payment or reimbursement of medical expenses of the employee and family. Uh, it does not necessarily only have to be the premiums, although that is the most common, it can be out-of-pocket medical expenses that are substantiated. It, 
including dental and vision. It doesn't even have to be major medical stuff. It can be any out-of-pocket medical expense. If you have ever used a flexible spending account, and that is something that an employee does contribute to, the same expenses that could be, that could be funded from personal funds through flexible spending are what could be paid for by the QSERA. Now, with this, though, the employee must provide proof, and this is, a, this is an Affordable Care Act term here, minimum, they must prove, provide proof of minimum essential coverage. Minimum essential coverage. So, and, and this is so new, this is one of the two or three things that it's like no one knows exactly what that is going to look like. We don't know how an employee is going to prove that. If they've, got an in, if they've got an invoice from a bill, that's a pretty good way to prove it. But they're going to have to be able to show the employer that, yes, indeed, we do have minimum essential coverage. And I'll come back to what that means here in just a moment. You had your hand raised, Kevin. Uh, yes, does that uh, automatically then eliminate Christian health share plans? So an employee that has a Christian health share plan would not be able to be Yeah, I mean, you're saying could a, could an employee who has a plan with Christian Health Share or Healthcare Ministries or MediShare would they be eligible for QSERA? No, no, you're right because that's not it's not considered minimum essential coverage. It's simply in the in the Affordable Care Act market reforms. That's the the lingo in the Affordable Care Act. They simply make an exception for what they call uh, Christian Health Sharing Ministries. They basically say it complies with ACA, but this actually is not compliant with ACA. It's, it's I forget the phrase they used, it's basically an alternative that's available um, because, it, it, because this actually does not comply with, with the market reforms of ACA. But it's because it's law, it's okay. It's kind of, you know, the government. Good question, though. Good question. Thank you for asking that one. It is, all, it is also an arrangement that has a permitted maximum, a permitted benefit. I probably should have put that in bold type, but, but I gave you the definition. So the permitted benefit is the maximum amount of the payment or the reimbursement. Um, oddly enough, I'm going to make a confession that I read one author who happens to be Dr. Hammer and was surprised to see that he had different numbers here than any other article. So I have used the other numbers. So usually I would I would go with Richard Hammer on everything, but he actually had fifty two sixty and ten thousand something higher than that, and so I don't know why. Is that monthly? Or is no, 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 that's annually. That's annually. You can't buy insurance that costs more than five thousand dollars for an employee. They, that, great question. So the, the 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 maximum permitted benefit for an employee is four thousand nine hundred and fifty, or for an employee and family is up to ten thousand. So they can, they can, so the question was, can that individual have insurance that costs more than that or not? Yes, they can. That's the maximum amount that the employer is allowed to, to reimburse. So if the employer is paying the entire premium, they're not going to be able to do it that way. They can't. They, they, if they're paying the insurance premium being billed for it, then they can't right. do it. Right. They're going to have to do it on a reimbursement. Yeah, that's what I would recommend. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Or or they could pay 100% until they hit that limit. 
then the employee wouldn't be able to contribute to it. Well, they'd have to, no. They'd have to just pay directly the rest of the premiums, right. and then they could they could then they could then theoretically claim out of pocket they medical expenses. The they can't contribute to the account, and so they would have to they would have to to get them as tax advantage dollars. They would have to claim whatever premiums that the they had to pay as an individual out of pocket as as an out of pocket medical expense on their tax return, and could right. still theoretically get them as pre tax in that way but they would have to pay for it for whatever the employer didn't. So the, the coverage can be employee only, or it can be a benefit that provides employee and family uh, thing. And as well, again, if you think about it, um, that is a good question about premiums. That is the most common and probably the highest dollar amount, but it doesn't have to just be for premiums. It can be for any valid out-of-pocket medical expense. So, you know, it kind of depends on which way you want to go. We're going to get into some issues of why even perhaps not contributing. No, nope, I'm not going to say that because it wouldn't matter. Never mind. I just thought of something, but I thought again, and I probably won't. That'll probably muddy things. All right, so here's coming back to those definitions that we talked to. So again, if you recall, it said it has to be paid on the same terms. So what does that mean? You have to pay the same percentage of premiums for covered employees regardless of the number of dependents and regardless of the status of the employee. So, if you have, and I'll give you an an example here, if you offer to pay 50% of the premiums for the employee and dependents, this may result in an employee with a spouse and child receiving more financially than an employee without any dependents. This still meets the requirements of the plan because they are receiving a benefit under the same terms, meaning they're still getting 50% of the premiums. So if you say to your employees, we will provide 100% of your premiums, well, and you've got an employee who is single, and you have an employee who has a spouse, or you have an employee with a spouse and a child, they're all getting 100%, regardless of what that means financially to them. Up to, up to the maximum, correct, up to the maximum. But you're still providing them the same level of benefit. So you can't, and here's the kicker, you cannot, like what we do in our environment and what you can do if you have a group health insurance plan, you can create classes of employees. So you can provide in we did this in the church environment when i was a church administrator 20 almost 20 years ago um wow i don't feel that old but i am um you could say for our pastoral staff we will provide family coverage it may not be 100 percent. it may be 90 of 90 percent premiums 80 percent premiums whatever but we will provide family coverage But for our support staff, our administrative personnel, we will provide employee-only coverage. You are able to do that with an employer-sponsored group health insurance plan. You cannot do that with a Kucera. It has to be the percentage of the premium scenario. So you can't say, we will provide 100% for our our pastoral staff and 50% for our support staff. So whatever you choose, it has to be the same for everybody regardless of how that may benefit them financially or not. Just a second, Rex. So that includes part-time employees? Well, 
No, because part, we'll, we'll get to the exclusions. We'll get to, thank you for that. Um, uh, there are exclusions that we're about to get to. Um, that's, that's, that employee, that, that's the eligible employee definition of, of who do you have to provide coverage for. So thank you. We'll, we are going to get there. Yes, Rex. Was that? Okay. All right. So now we go, uh, before I get to the eligible employee, even though that was first on the, the text earlier, we'll talk about eligible employer. So this assumes that you are not an applicable large employer. And the definition for that is an employer that has less than 50 full-time equivalent employees the prior year. And what that FTE means is if you have a bunch of part-time employees and you aggregate their hours, and so let's say that you have 150 part-time employees and you added all of their hours up, if cumulatively that 150 still only had hours that would be 45 people's worth of full-time you know, like 40 hours a week, you take all those hours, divide them by 40, that tells you how many FTE you actually had. If you only, even if you've got 150 or 200 employees, but it, but it breaks down to be less than 50 FTE, you don't have, you're not considered a large employer. Because when you hit that mark, when you're considered a large employer, you don't have a choice. This fund is, this plan is not available to you because you have to provide group health insurance plan. I think that might apply to about half of a percent of our churches in Ohio because most of our churches have maybe two or three personnel, if that, you know, to have, you know, they may, if they have a Christian school, possibly it's going to get a little bit larger, but they're probably still not going to hit that 50 FTE mark. And you, if, so assuming that you are not a large employer, then you also have to be a, a small employer that is not already voluntarily doing a group health plan. Now, you could stop doing the group health plan if you wanted to. I mean, if you wanted to take, because there may, there may have been some small employers that went that route when they could no longer do the previous standalone reimbursement. So they may have moved into a group health, em- health plan. They would have to terminate that plan to be able to shift back into the Cusero world. So then, an eligible employee of an eligible employer. So it's any employee of an eligible employer except those who have not completed 90 days of service. So that allows that employer to bring on a new hire, put them on a trial period, probationary period, you know, uh, whatever you, probation, you know, Probationary is kind of a harsh word, but, you know, just a trial basis to see if they're going to stick as an employee or not. Um, that, you know, for the employees, that employers that may have a lot of turnover, that's a very valuable thing because, you know, it's, it's, it's a challenge logistically. Um, you know, we, Heartland Conference Retreat Center has, has a good deal of turnover in its staff because it's a lot of young people out of high school and college that are doing, you know, housekeeping and food service, and sometimes they just don't stick. And, <sighs> and it, God bless you. Sorry about that. Um, uh, so it would, it's a challenge to, if you had to put them on the, you know, enroll them into the health plan and the dental and division if you offer that, and then they they leave after you know 60 days it's just a lot of work for 
So they give you a 90-day grace period, basically, that that employee does not have to be, uh, is not considered eligible. If they are under age 25, they are not eligible. So, so you can't even offer this to them if you want to. It's, it's, not, like you've, it's not like you're trying to get them. You'd like to. You can't, you can't give them this unless they're age 25 which is kind of interesting because I'm not sure what the rationale behind that is. They can stay on their parents until they're 25. They can, theoretically. You're right. That's probably the reason, but yeah. Yeah. If they are part-time or seasonal, Heartland has a lot of seasonal, empl- seasonal employees as well that only work like March through September. And because they don't work enough hours cumulatively to be considered year-round, um, you know, of course, we have group health health claim. I'm just trying to give you the example there. But if, so, if they're part time or seasonal, then then they are not considered to be an eligible employee. I thought this last one: if they're they're not eligible if they are a non-resident alien with no U.S. income. And I'm thinking, well, what employer would want to put them on a plan? But I guess I guess if I was going the other way, and I you know I really wanted to try to help out a family, you know, I'm a good-natured soul, and I'm wanted to help somebody out, and so they're not actually working for me. I could theoretically add them to the plan for no good reason. It seems a little odd. I just thought that was interesting that that was one of the reasons that someone would not be eligible. Yes, Mark? Uh, does the employer establish the rule for a full-time? In other words, if, uh, mm-hmm. if you put a part-time person on a salary, that would not be considered full-time? Well, it all, do, it all comes down... It all comes down to hours worked. I mean, you can pay them a salary, but if, then you still break that down to to how many hours did they work really is what determines whether or not that they... Okay, yeah, so I'm going there. So uh, things have shifted somewhat. I mean, the, you heard me say a while ago to determine that full-time equivalency that mark is 40 hours. So 40 hours a week is full-time. But here's the so so um, Michelle, I must, do you do you have a group health insurance plan? Okay. So in this environment, this is a good example. We've got a, comp- a company. Uh, let's, you could be a church, especially. Let's let's put you into the world where you have a daycare or you have a Christian school that does not have a group health insurance plan. Um, now let me go the other way. You offer a group health insurance plan. So if so I'm, 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 trying, I'm trying not to waffle here, but I'm trying to really determine which is going to be the better answer for you. If you offer a group health insurance plan, the regulations now state, and this, is, this is, was changed because Ohio used to be different than the federal, but now they're both the same, um, that if you offer a group health insurance plan, if you have any employee who regularly works 30 hours or more in a week, and I want to say when they, when they define regularly, it's like 26 weeks out of the year, so half the year. If they, if looking back, you've got an employee that you thought was part time, but you look back and you look at their time cards, and when you take all of their hours over a 26 week period, if they were working 30 hours or more on average, they have to be added to your group health insurance plan. So I don't know with this new Qsera. What I'd have to do a little bit more research to determine 
what the part-time definition is. Do they go with that 40 hours a week, which is where you determine full-time equivalency? Or do they go with that 30 hours, which that's that market reform thing, which is probably the predominant one. So if I was going to err, I would want to err on the side of caution, and I would probably go with 30 until I knew for sure. So what if they uh, it's a spouse, let's say my secretary, and her husband works for a major corporation, and he has insurance, do I... We are almost there. We are, we are almost there. The, I won't even repeat that question since we're actually, that literally is, that literally is like the next slide. Minimum essential coverage. That was the other thing that we had highlighted. And I will tell you, this session is supposed to go until 1230. My slides are starting to run thin because I honestly did not know how much discussion this was going to, to engender. But hopefully we'll have some time for some questions if there's more. And the, the real question will be whether or not I have an answer for you. Because uh, this is still so new. So minimum essential coverage, it can be obtained in a number of ways. So the pr- primary way that most common to think of, especially when we're talking in our church environment or we might have that solo pastor and uh, church secretary or whatever, they're not going to have, they're not gonna have uh, a group health insurance plan, but they definitely, the, the, the pastor, uh, you know, Sometimes our pastors are, you know, they'll have a spouse that does have access to coverage, and so the pastor will join the the spouse's plan. But a lot of t- a lot of times our our pastors, their spouses don't work, and so that's not an option. So so in that case, the pastor can purchase an individual health insurance policy. That in, and again, because because the Cusera does allow for family benefit as well, so there could be then pastor and spouse. Uh, have a have individual health insurance policies, and that can then be the proof that they have minimum essential coverage, um, and qualify for getting the Cusera reimbursement. To answer Mark's question, what about that that church secretary whose husband or whose wife has, um, or youth pastor? I'm not trying to. to Define who's what the valid roles are there. I just stepped in it, didn't I? Um, uh, you know, but you, we, I do know of a number of youth pastors whose whose uh, spouse works outside the home, and they'll they'll do that as well. So they can then have the coverage that is available to them from the spouse's employer serve as the minimum essential coverage, even though that is a group, a, a, an employer-sponsored group health plan for that individual that. Is the is the family member, but not the primary participant, that becomes their minimum essential coverage. Um, and so, just one second, I want to say something before I forget, or I will forget it. So, do, hopefully, you won't forget yours. Um, so, in this scenario, the the coverage that's provided through the spouse is the is the minimum essential coverage for for the person that works at the church. In this case. The assumption here is, that, or, or this is the, what I'm seeing as a potential conflict, the, the, the most likely scenario for that, that coverage that's provided through the spousal plan is that it is already being paid for with pre-tax dollars. Because most likely that, that employer has, is using a cafeteria, Section 125 plan, so... so the, the, the spouse 
has enough money withheld from his or her paycheck to cover the husband or wife's added on premiums on a pre-tax basis. So getting then these reimbursements wouldn't really qualify for towards the premiums. You can't make them more pre-tax than they already were. So there's, that's when you start thinking about, well, it's not just then premiums that we're going to be getting re- reimbursed because there are other out-of-pocket medical expenses other than just premiums. So you're not disqualified to getting the, the funds. It's just a matter of where you're, where you're allocating them. So if, if what, I'm sorry, what's your name? Sammy. Sam. So if Sammy, if Sammy is, is the spouse that has insurance, and his, and his wife works for a church, most likely his employer is going to be taking the money out of his paycheck on a pre-tax basis. So that's already been tax-advantaged as far as it can go. So they're going to be thinking of the other things they're going to be paying for out of pocket besides her premiums. Does that make sense? Well, that's what, yeah, because that's, that's the whole point of this is to... Oh, no, you can't do it both ways? No. Okay. No. So they couldn't reimburse them on the already tax-advantaged premiums a different way? No, that's what I'm saying. You, so you'd have to be... You, but, but, you, but in this case, you're only using the bill, so to speak, for, for the spousal plan to prove this. You're not necessarily reimbursing that bill. You're just proving this piece of it. So you reimburse out-of-pocket? Yeah. Yeah, Co-pays... Dental and vision, which are often not a part of that health insurance plan, that, that if you if you didn't if you didn't have a flexible spending uh, plan. Um, <laughs> the last reimbursement. Oh, so you're thinking more of like here you're just using this to prove minimum essential coverage for the spousal plan. So you're thinking then of the other out-of-pocket expenses that could be re- that could be the usage of the funds. So there's your health, not just your health, but then your dental, uh, vision uh, premiums because you you may not have them attached to a major medical plan. So if you're doing health and uh, vision and dental, it could be your copays, uh, your prescription copays, um, basically anything else that that uh, you'd pay out of pocket other than the premiums. Yeah, anything that was just going to be paid because it didn't hit a copay, you know, but you still had to satisfy a deductible. Um, Yeah. Not the amount that you're putting into your HSA, right? Correct. Okay, that's right. Yeah. Because this actually doesn't, this would not work, this wouldn't be compatible with an HSA because those are funded by employee dollars. They can be funded by both, but this, to have an HSA now, you can only have an HSA, health savings account, when it is coupled with a, an employer-sponsored group health plan. You can't, there's, there's no such thing as a standalone HSA anymore. Kevin. If you're covered under your parents' employer's health plan, you're already disqualified, aren't you? Because you're going to be under 25. Well, yeah. Well, it really depends if you're under 25. I mean, it, you could theoretically... Yeah, yeah. The age is the first disqualifier because I think you can actually be if you're a college student. I think it goes up to 26. Uh, so, be so there's like one year that theoretically you could get this to help mom and dad pay your bill, you know, for or, or your other out, out of pocket. There's nothing the employee can accrue for funds that were not spent in a year. Mm-hmm. No. Because they weren't reimbursed. 
All right, notice and reporting requirements. So there, first is an employee notice. So annually, I want, I want to just make sure I stress this. So it's not just a one-time thing. Every year, and I tried to make this less wordy, but it was just impossible. Every year, 90 days before the beginning of the year in which an employer will fund a QSERA, you have to provide a notice to the employees. So if January 1 is your fiscal year, you have to provide as early as, well, I guess technically it's not October 1 because it's 90 days and there's 31 days in October and December. But you don't understand what I'm saying. October 1 would be the deadline in which you have to let your employees know, hey, this is what we're going to do. And you have to do that every single year that you plan to do that. So, it, so if, you, if this is of interest and you think you might want to do this for 2018, now, you do have nine more days in 2017 to start one. And they, they, they kicked back this until the end of March. So you do have, by, by March 13th, to start the plan, and by March 31st, to let your employees know you've started the plan. So that's an oddball for this year only. So if, you're gonna, if this is of interest and you think this is something you might want to do for 2018, October 1st, essentially, would be the deadline in which you would let everyone, everyone know that that's what you're planning to do. The exception is, if you've got new employees, it, it's you only have to notify them on the date in which they would be eligible. So that's after that 90-day period that they have. I mean, you, could tell, you can tell them earlier, you know, hey, in 90 days, you're going to be eligible for this. You could do that. But they're not technically eligible until they've had the 90-day window. So that's really the date at which you have to tell them that they have that available to them. Does that make sense? You could tell them earlier, but you can't tell them beyond once they're finally eligible. I had a bunch of notes on this one. Let me make sure I didn't miss anything. Okay, the next is a written notice. The written notice must include the amount of the permitted benefit. So that's the, you know, forty-nine fifty or ten thousand, depending on if the employer has decided to do employee only or employee family percentage assistance, whatever that percentage assistance might be. It's the maximum amount. So if you think of it that way, they can be less, theoretically, and the upper limits will be adjusted for inflation. But those are the current limits at at present. Um, But you could theoretically say, well, you know... I'd like to be able to, to do something. So if you're thinking outside of just, you know, premiums, which are that big number, well, you know, I, I can't do all that, but I want to help my employees. So I'm going to, for this first year, for my employee, we're going to do employee-only coverage, and I'm going to provide 2500 You can choose to do that as an employer. It's the upper limit. You can't go beyond. I thought you couldn't do employer, employee-only. No, no, you you can't. Great question. The you you can do employee only, but you can't do employee only for support staff and employ an employee family for another group. Of, so wh- how whoever whoever's on your staff, if you're going to provide this, they all get the same benefit. So they can all get employee only, or they all get employee family. And, and then it's a matter of then it's the percentage. Right. 
then it's the you you the percentage has to be the same. So, but they all have to be treated the same in that regard. Good clarification. So you have to give them the written notice of the amount of the permitted benefit. You have to let them know that the employee is required to notify the exchange. And I'm going to come back to that particular um, item here in a couple of slides. Um, because there is some interaction here, depending on what type of insurance they have purchased. There is some potential impact on... on uh, market plans, exchange um, plans. So you have to let them know that they are required to notify the exchange. You have to let them know the consequences of not having minimum essential coverage. And I'm just going to bullet point these really quick here. Um, If they ever have a month in which they are not covered with minimum, minimum essential coverage, the employee may be subject to tax under the individual mandate of ACA. Because again, ACA is the law of the land. This sits beside it, external to it. So if they're not covered by minimum essential coverage, then ACA comes back into play. And so if there's ever a period in which they don't have MEC and they get any kind of dollar from this plan, it's taxable. It's taxable. Just for that period. Just for that period. If an employee notices that this is going to affect their marketplace, their exchange negatively, they can deny and say, I don't want it. Right? You just have to offer it to everybody. Not everybody has to. Yeah, if you're choosing to offer it to everybody... They can choose, just like any other health insurance, they can waive. They could, they could waive. I don't think that's You don't think so? No, because if an employer offers an employee insurance, they're not eligible for marketplace subsidies. Well, that's what I'm about to come to. That's what I'm about to come to. But, well, it's, they, do act, they work together. They, they can work together. So let me get through that, and we'll see if it's still a question. We'll see if it's still a question. Um, if the employer does not provide notice, then the employer is subject to a $50 per employee penalty for, for that. And I think it's up to $2,500 per calendar year. That wouldn't get that high for most of our church employers, but you know, if you have a number of employees, then that could, could, could come into play. There is also, much like there has been with the advent of affordable care, where uh, if any of you are subject to or benefit from a group health insurance plan, that is now reported on your W-2 as an informational piece um, in box 12. So most likely that's what's going to happen with this. That's still you know, out there at this point in time. This is one of the, those other things that is still just a, a, an unknown. But the employer is going to have to report the permitted benefit that was provided to the employee. E on their W-2, most likely it will come as a box 12 code uh, on the W-2. If you use a payroll company, they'll be very familiar with that and you'll know, work with them to make sure that happens. Um, that's, that's a new piece as well. Here is that exchange notification. Okay, so if the individual has applied for premium assistance, then they must, they must report to the exchange the amount of permitted benefit and the QSERA reimbursements reduce or eliminate premium tax credits and marketplace subsidies. 
So you can still have the you can still have the marketplace plan, but any redu reduction of the of that because of a subsidy or a tax credit will be reduced by however much you actually receive. So you may not want to turn it down, Kevin. You may not want to turn it down because you don't know how much you're actually going to receive. So it may still be valuable. It, it's, it's really, if you look at it this way, at worst it's a trade-off. If you max out the 4950 and you lose 4950 over on, your, on the subsidy, it really didn't cost you anything. It just traded how you received what you got. But what if you only receive $2,000 from the Qsera? That means you're still going to get almost $3,000 worth of subsidy or tax credit still available to you on the market plan. So you still benefited in some way from having that type of insurance plan. Does that make sense? Yeah. Would that just apply to the premium or would it, would it apply to the extra, you know, like full pays? Well, it, well, it would it really, it really is, is, it doesn't apply to either of those specifically because it's not, the, the amount of the benefit, the permitted benefit, may not go to premiums, but the marketplace has to be notified of the total amount, regardless of, regardless of what it was applied to, the full amount that the individual benefited from is, what's get, is what gets reported. So it will, it will, and however it was, re, what, for whatever reason it was reimbursed, it will impact any tax credits or subsidies. And not everybody receives those. Um, not everybody receives those, but again, in worst case scenario, is it's a, neg, it's a zero sum. It just takes away a credit that you got somewhere else. It's the employer's uh, responsibility to report that amount. Well, they report, they, no, they report to the employee. The employee who has purchased the marketplace plan reports it to the exchange. Good question. The only negative, I think, to that is that, and it's not necessarily, but to the employee, yeah, you're right, they, they, it's a zero balance. But it's the difference of the taxpayers giving me money versus the church is giving me money, so... The church, it's a benefit. Well, actually, that was that's a good comment because that was one of the comments that was made in one of the articles I read is that some may choose not to do it because it, it could have an adverse effect on that. It really depends on the employer. If the employee is going to look, if the employer is going to look at that and say, you know, I would I would prefer that the government help them out than me, then yeah. you're absolutely right. It's it's all about where's the where's the added you know where's the heart where's the heart you know to to put behind it. Yeah, that, one of the articles actually said the same exact thing. It would kill our church <laughs> right now. Yeah, it's not, it's, it's not going to be for everybody, but it is now available. If, if it could be a salary reduction, um, then it wouldn't negatively impact the church. But since that can't be the case, I mean, then the church would have to be you know, paying all that extra money. <laughs> Correct. It cannot be a salary reduction. But if across the board, the church cut salaries. Right. Can I turn this off? <laughs> if across, which, which I'm going back to when it was the whole thing with, okay, we're not that solo pastor church that can, that can still reimburse their insurance. We have two or three people for which we want to, for which we want to provide some assistance. The only thing I could tell them is, 
whatever you pay them, you cannot call it health insurance. But you can pay them any salary amount you want to pay them. So if you want to pay them an extra $5,000 because you love them and you want to, they can do whatever they want to with that extra $5,000. Because that was still a way that then they could then go buy their own health insurance and be blessed. So, we, so that was my solution during that, was give them a raise of, of whatever amount you were wanting to give them, but just don't call it health insurance, and leave it up to them to take care of their own health insurance. And that's probably still probably the only option for some, because that's really, in your situation, because you're wanting to provide something, the only way you could do it is if you cut salaries, so it's six of one, half a dozen of the other. But again, it would be pre-tax. So I hate to kind of say that because I don't want to sound like I was telling people to give people raises for health insurance and take it back. I, I don't want to say that I was, that's what I said. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, sorry, just a second, Mark. He's had his hand up for a little bit. The, the caution I would give as far as the marketplace versus this, mm-hmm. a lot of your employees might benefit greatly by being on the marketplace. Absolutely. Because they're getting the large subsidy. They're getting enhanced benefits. Yeah. So their yeah. approach may be better to not do the QSERA as a premium plan and buy a plan for the, under the church, but just use the QSERA to reimburse them for their out-of-pocket on that. And that way it is a dollar-for-dollar trade-off. Yeah. Because if they buy a plan under the church, that plan's probably not going to be as rich as the plan they can get under the marketplace. That's Depending true. Depending on their family size and their income rate. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Because I know if we offer it to all of our daycare employees, a lot of them pay 10 bucks for their health insurance. You're not going to get that anywhere else? No. No. Absolutely. Mark, would you? This is probably purely conjecture on your part, but... <laughs> would it be bad if I said a lot of what I say is that? Goalkeeping <laughs> nightmare for me, first, that's how I look at it. Is this, if it's repealed, and replaced, can a lot of this book work just shoved into the flusher? Possibly. Possibly. You know... That was my question. Was this an executive order or was it added to the ACA? It was was a law that came through the House of Representatives and through the Senate. It's law. The 21st Century Cures Act is the name of the law. Yeah. Sounds like a lot of paperwork. Well, there's a lot of paperwork that came about with with ACA, and and so yeah, it's and that's why that's why you have paychecks and ADP offering you their services to help you with all of it because it is such a headache. This Cures Act is out of the scope of ACA. No, because again, the Cures Act was was predominantly just dealing with FDA approval processes and funding for research. This this was like the only like health care reform if you wanted to call a health care reform. ACA was a health care reform bill. This was like a piece of a health care reform added on, added on to the end of this. Yeah. It was, it was to try to fix what was broken with this. When they, took away, when they took away the standalone HRA, which had a lot less headache behind it, it really did, and they went to the headache of ACA, they couldn't go all the way back. So we, we at least got the benefit but we still have a headache. <laughs> Back on the, the hours thing, am I right that a, that a pastor 
once a church dictates a pastor's hours, they're, they're employed, no longer self-employed. And so, so the question was, as a, as a minister, the church dictates hours, how do you know if you're part-time or full-time? The interesting thing is that the Department of Labor does not get involved with ministers and has exempted them from almost every scenario of determining if they are full-time or part-time or if they are exempt or non-exempt. So ministers, you don't have to worry about it. So a church really could say, uh, that pastor's part-time, this one's full-time. Well, well they, they couldn't do that because they, they, do set the, they, they do set the level of hours. At, well, again, if you're going to provide it, it comes back to full-time equivalency or, or that, probably that 30-hour-a-week scenario. You're going to have a hard time saying that a, any minister is not is not eligible because the IRS looks at a minister and says that although you are self-employed for Social Security and Medicare, 99.9% of the time that IRS is going to look at that person and say, in regards to our tax, income tax, you are an employee. And so then, if as an employee, then if they're working 30 hours or more, which would be easily provable, they would be eligible. Because we all just work two hours a week. Right, yeah, just on Sunday mornings for a couple hours. Y'all, and if you wanted to look at Phil, Phil Anderson posted a Will Smith graphic the other day, that, and it was like the look that, that the pastor gives you, when he, or the, the look the pastor gives when he's asked, so what do you do the rest of the week? And, he, and, he, and, he, and Will Smith was like, it was kind of funny. Sorry. You had a question? Yeah, so instead of providing a health care plan, not really anymore you can't just provide dollars that are strictly for health and health care because it it has to impact the it has to comply with the market reforms or this so either you're just do the QSARA and just do that I mean you could like their church could do that <laughs> yeah, I mean, theoretically, you could do that. But again, if you do that, it's gonna it, it's gonna be considered a Cusera. It's gonna be a Cusera, which then, if the if the individual ends up going to a marketplace plan, if he goes to a third party and doesn't buy a marketplace plan, then then yeah, it could. What do you mean by third party? Not the ACA. Not an ACA. Not a marketplace. Not an exchange plan. Like you go you go somewhere that's not an exchange equivalent or an, a, an ACA plan. Right. You go to something else that's not ACA, which is hard to find these days. No, it's just off exchange. Yeah, it's just off exchange. Because right. the exchange is where you can get that tax subsidy or the, or the tax credit and the subsidy. As long as you're not getting, or you could get an exchange plan that, and just not have those, but if you go something that's off exchange, yeah, you could just you could do that. I mean, just say, so this is what you have to use towards, towards that. The off Absolutely. exchange will be a little bit cheaper than the on exchange. Yeah. Okay, last slide. Last slide. Uh, this is not an endorsement. It's just a piece of information. Um, and we'll, we'll wrap up a, a couple minutes early maybe. Um, paperwork nightmare. We already talked about headache. As with any health plan that you might have or provide as an employer, what do you have to have with every health plan? You've got to have a plan document. That's the, that's, the, that's the plan document that rules and governs what the plan does. I, went, I just did a web search. 
and I wanted to see if I could find a sample one online. It's too new. It's too new. I'm hoping I can get my hands on a resource from a friend of mine. Um, but the only one I've found readily is from, and I've seen this company before, called Core Documents. They have a template that you can purchase for $199 right now so you can have a legal plan. So if you're wanting to start one because you want to do it by March 13th of, so you can have it for the rest of this year, um, it'll cost you 199 bucks to get a necessary plan document so that your, your plan is legal and compliant. I'm hoping again that I can get my hands on one from a friend of mine um, that uh, is, a, is with a, a CPA firm, um, but I haven't heard back from him yet. Um, but that is a possibility. It is, they are out there, at least from some vendors. Uh, that's, and I have paid for other plan documents for like our, our cafeteria, one, you know, Section 125 plan. That price is actually not horrible you know, for having something that's already all done for you that you didn't have to put a lot of legwork into. All right. I hope you all have a wonderful day. Let you out about a minute or two early. And great to have you today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Hope it was informative. <laughs>